Hello, Will. How are you doing today? How's it going, LJ? It's been a busy week, but I'm excited to be here and talking about probably the most exciting development since I can remember in immigration. That's right. We've been holding off for almost two weeks now, if uh, memory serves me right. But, uh, you know, to begin with, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm in the traditional lands of the Mowekma, Milwak, and Yokuts in the San Joaquin Valley. And I'm speaking today from the unceded traditional and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Sweltooth, and Kaika nations here in Burnaby, British Columbia. All right. For starters, Will, what are we talking about today? It's not a wind. It's not a fish. It is Chinook. And what we know about Chinook is it's IRCC secret pet project uh, that they've been working on for a couple of years now to process temporary residents, ap temporary resident applications. They've kept quite a lid on it for a while, but now through litigation, they're starting to open the doors and show what goes on behind the scenes. So today we wanted to bring on someone to talk about it. That's right. And we do have a special guest today, and she has been doing a lot of judicial reviews and challenged more study permit refusals than we have likely done together, Will, uh, combined. She has focused yeah. her practice area on helping the Iranian community, as I understand it, and she's holding into account the Ankara visa office. Yeah, and she happens to be, for me, the initiator of the Chinook issue. So what happened a while back was we had been engaging on Twitter, and then I get an email from Zainab saying, you have to see this. I've learned something that people don't know, and we need to talk about it. And it turned out to be an affidavit, not the one that's currently in this case that we're going to talk about Okrin, but a previous iteration of the affidavit, very similar. Mm -hmm. And they pretty much laid out Chinook. And that's when Zainab and I first learned about Chinook. And that's why we have her on as a guest, because she's the one who has thought about it probably more than anyone in Canada, I would say. And without further ado, we'd like to welcome Zainab and... So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our friend and friend of the show, superstar lawyer, Zainab Zai. How are you doing today, Zainab? Hi, well, hi, Lou. I'm great. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. We're so excited to have you on the show today to talk about Chinook. I was just telling our audience about how we started collaborating, and I think even uh, LJ was, uh, didn't know some of the details, so we're excited to talk about it all today. I'm looking forward to it. I think this is an interesting time and we'll have to see how this progresses, especially since the hearing is coming up in about two weeks. Absolutely. And we're talking about the, the federal court case of Okrin that's occurring in two weeks and Zainab has some exclusive to drop on, on today's episode as well. So let's talk about first, in our show, we, we tend to like to introduce our, our uh, guests and, and give a little bit of a background. And in this case, it's, it's life before Chinook. So tell me a bit about your practice and how you started handling this volume of study permit refusals that got you to learn about Chinook. Sure, absolutely. So uh, based on language ability, I have worked predominantly with Iranians and uh, Iranian Canadian applicants for the past decade, working in all kinds of different economic classes. And also in the last five, six years, as the policies of IRCC have changed, allowing for more temporary applicants, you know, across the world, really, that has opened up an opportunity for more and more students, particularly from Iran, to apply. And historically, actually, Iranians are one of the top source countries for immigrants, skilled immigrants to Canada. So before Chinook, you know, I'm assuming Chinook probably came in to, to, to practice, you know, it, it, into use in the way it is right now, probably from late 2019. And we definitely know that it's been around in 2020. But before that, what we would see in, for example, the local visa office where the study permits were being processed, which is Ankara, if you know it was possible for an application to be refused and what if if it was a complete application what we could do is actually reach out to a real person often the program manager we would explain you know for example they say this application has been refused for lack of funds but these documents were provided in the application and those would be our informal requests for reconsideration and we would get responses, like there was an actual person who would review and respond. And a lot of times they were extremely reasonable. I understand as volumes of work went up, this whole Chinook system has come into play. Uh, and also I should add, you know, in cases where files were in fact deficient and somebody came to us, we would advise, you know, 
reapply with a very complete application and almost always you would get very different results when the, the application was in fact complete. Uh, fast forward, you know, what we're seeing in 2020, 2021 is that, you know, sure volumes have significantly increased, but a lot of decisions that are being made have no relationship to the underlying cases that applicants are submitting. And I'm sure, again, it's because of the, the sheer volume of files that they're facing. Requests for reconsideration are not receiving responses or are just receiving the standard similar response that the decision is what it is. And the, the, the challenge also is, you know, there's been a lot of reconfiguration of where files are processed. So a lot of actually applicants in our case from Iran are actually processed in the Ottawa's office. So there, there has been that kind of reallocation of files. So we're seeing decisions coming from Ottawa for a lot of these, these applications. Mm -hmm. So what you're documenting is uh, possibly due to the volume, a change in the way immigration is handling study permit applications. I want to maybe frame this also in your understanding of Vavilov, and I know many of our cases don't make it to litigation because they consent earlier or, you know, we don't get a chance to go to the court and argue Vavilov as much, but how did Vavilov change the landscape? And, and do you think it's a case that uh, we should be thinking about as we talk about Chinook? Well, I, I actually do think it's very important. I use that case in every single uh, application for judicial review that we're, we're putting forward because it is about the opportunity to really have reasons that are justifiable and are like the decisions are based on the documents and the evidence that were before the officer. And I think that the, the, the challenge that we're facing is a lot of applicants would have in the prior system, as I just explained, been able to reapply with more complete applications or would have reapplied and an officer would have noticed the error in the first refusal. But what's happening now is that if you have a refusal, you're just going to almost automatically get refused again. I think it becomes one of those factors that gets plugged into something that gives them a chance of highly refusing your application. Not always, but very, very likely. And that's why applicants, I think, have turned to judicial review. And this is where we are therefore able to use case law such as Vavilov to really to, to make those arguments. And there have been some really positive, I think, decisions that have come out of the federal court in 2020 and 2021 that are specifically study permit applications. Generally speaking, the court has always adopted, you know, lower procedural fairness requirements for temporary resident applications. We all know that and we acknowledge that and we're not expecting the same level of review as an application for permanent residence, for example, or citizenship. But there has to be a minimum. There has to be some correlation between the evidence and the reasons that we're seeing for refusal. Mm -hmm. And that, because I think there's just such sheer volume of applications that they can't process all of them accurately, we're seeing so many refusals of worthy applications. And so, you know, we are definitely able to use Vavilov and that does come into play. And that's why I think a lot of actually cases will settle. I mean, I know we're going to get into that, but it, 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 it's an important decision that is actually opened the door for us to do these kinds of judicial review applications. Yeah. And as a follow-up to Will's question, I'm, I'm wondering uh, two, two questions, really. What trends did you see when uh, you were looking at Okrin and in light of Vavilov? And as a follow-up, actually, just out of your historical involvement in this, how did you first find out about Chinook? Okay, that's a really good question. So, you know, we, we started doing a lot of these applications in early 2020. And the trend that we saw was that, you know, I, I will tell you, I have reviewed several hundred refusals during this period of time. And we have not, we have not applied for judicial review in even half of those cases. Because oftentimes applicants will not know, will have made mistakes, will have created incomplete files, and they're just not appropriate for judicial review. We would say the decisions are in fact reasonable, right? It's the cases where the decisions are unreasonable that we're taking these steps. So my, my experience, for example, in early 2020 was when we were um, filing these applications for judicial review, the Department of Justice lawyers would come back much more quickly 
with an offer for settlement because they, you know, it was probably the first time. And I tell my clients this, I'm like, when you file an application for judicial review, it's quite possibly the first time that somebody will actually review your file and read your full documents, right? Because the, the, the visa officers don't have the time. And it, it's there's an irony there, right? Because I'm sure the cost of a you know, a visa officer is much, much, much lower than a Department of Justice lawyer, right? And the costs that are associated with litigation. But we, what we saw was that there was a lot more uh, willingness on the part of DOJ to recognize that there were these errors. As we moved forward, I think that this has probably changed a bit for, for various reasons. And um, I think the first time I saw reference to this particular affidavit that we're talking about here was actually in a different case called Zahra, Shafakat Zahra, I think. And that case was, uh, they filed this affidavit in April. So Department of Justice filed the affidavit regarding the Chinook system in April, 2020. And shortly thereafter, they filed a letter in one of our applications saying that in an independent matter, we filed this, we want the court to know. And so, you know, obviously I requested a copy and I read it and I thought it was really strange because I thought it was setting out something that was not in the best interest of DOJ to actually disclose. It was telling us that they're possibly not disclosing everything. It was also telling us that they have this extra system that they're using to like move data over, move it back. And I, I, was, I, was, I was kind of concerned. And then I saw it again on another matter. And that's when I was like, I think we need to look into this. And, and, I, and I had seen some of Will's um, writing and texts with regards to international students. So I reached out to him. It ended up that matter settled, but they switched this all over to the current case, which is Okren, and they filed the affidavit in that case. And in this case, it hasn't settled. The hearing is scheduled to take place in two weeks. And so there was an opportunity for us to reach out to, I think Will actually took the initiative on that, reach out to counsel who's working on that application. And, you know, we, we sort of tried to provide assistance you know, they've been able to do cross-examination on the affidavit, which has brought to light some interesting information, but there's still a lot of question marks. I mean, sure, we know a little bit about what's inside the black box, but I think there's still a lot for us to figure no, I out. I definitely agree that this uh, whole episode has actually brought about more questions than answers. And uh, this allows me to shift the conversation a little bit to the technical affidavit and to what we've gleaned so far. But what were your first thoughts regarding the, uh, you know, the system when you first read the technical affidavit? You know, I, I, as I said, I thought it actually was counterproductive for DOJ to be putting this forward. I wasn't sure where they were going with it. And I actually was quite surprised because I had never quite, I mean, we don't really know how these officers make their decisions. We have some information that we've been able to get from access to information, some manuals, et cetera, but we don't really know what happens and what order, how we've, they've never officially come out. I don't think we don't have any data of like how much time they spend processing applications. We know that they have a lot of applications. So it was very interesting to see this, it's it's literally like a homemade tool, I would say. Like they've added, they've created an Excel sheet. I, I mean, I can go into a little bit of detail if you'd like, if it's appropriate. Um, so it's it what it is. It's an, from what what we've been told through this affidavit is that it's a, an Excel tool. It allows the officers to pull all the information, well, some information from the GCMS system. And from the, the examples they provided, it's information like name, age, um, place of birth, city citizenship, you know, country of residence, like really basic information. And it then allows the officer to not have to go back into GCMS. And the affidavit says that the officers still have access to the documents in the file, but it doesn't tell us like, does it record it if they access the documents? Like, do they? have to make any particular notes like there's nothing there and the idea is that within the spreadsheet they can pull like a hundred files at the same time and each file will be one row and therefore the officer can just go across the rows and then they'll get to a point where they're like i want to accept or refuse this this file and they just make a note if they want to accept it it's an acceptance if they want to refuse it 
they, they put, you know, refuse. Then there's a pop-up, which is, I think, the most interesting part of our whole conversation. I, I Like, when I think about the system, I think about this part, which is there's a pop-up, which is their notes generator. And then this note generator, the officers are given from what's been described in the, you know, in the affidavit and what came out on the cross-examination, a whole series of potential reasons literally that they can choose and they can select this and that those can become the notes. Now, apparently it's possible for an officer to add extra things into those notes. From my experience, as I said, I've seen so many refusals. They do occasionally add in an extra couple of words here and there, but it so many of these read exactly the same. And what happens after they generate these notes is that they copy and paste them. So they, they'll do like maybe 50, maybe 100 different people at the same time. And then they can just copy and paste the final notes back into GCMS. There is an extra column in there for their working notes. So, you know, if they're reminders to themselves, we don't really know what those working notes are. Maybe an officer writes need to check bank statements, but we don't. We will never know that because those working notes are not copied over. And um, that, that is like the, the main part of this Excel spreadsheet. And the other challenge of this is because they're putting so many different applications into one spreadsheet at a time, they claim that there's privacy concerns and they cannot save these spreadsheets, right? So they'll say, oh, well, if we want to save this, We'll have to go back and redact like the other 99 if we want to give one person their spreadsheet. And so we don't want to put this out there. And so they don't actually save it. So those spreadsheets and the working notes are completely deleted. And all we end up with is some notes that are copied potentially correctly back into the GCMS system. So moving just one step back here, we do know for this uh, Chinook system, there are also different modules. There's yeah. module one, file management, module two, pre-assessment, module three, decision maker, module four, the post-decision as you were talking about, and then module five with our indicator management. What's interesting as well, and I think Zainab, we, we found out a lot of this through the cross-examination process is they're not applying all these modules across all visa offices. And in fact, the version of Chinook they're using is not even the same among the different visa offices. So does it give concern to you that there is really no oversight, you know, legal oversight or what be it, and that different visa offices can choose what they want to do with this tool? And can I chime in a little bit just to add to Will's question is that uh, are we ending up with really uneven decision making processes? That's a really good question. But Lou, I would say we probably already have uneven decision processing across the world, unfortunately. And I think because we, you know, between at least the three of us and probably a lot of your listeners will know this too, deal with different parts of the world. We know there's there's uneven decision making for sure. And I think it it this adds to it, right? Having different versions of the system, having different combinations that are being used. So, you know, the, 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 I think it's module two, which is the pre-assessment in some places. And I think, I believe they use the example of India, but I'm not quite sure. Southeast Asia, um, I think was that yes, one. Um, I think then, so too. Yeah. Module, uh, module one, sorry for coming up. Module one was sub-Saharan African, Latin American and Caribbean. Module two was Southeast Asia. And then module three apparently is being used by most. So, yeah. but these countries, these, these areas obviously are, are regions yeah. where we're seeing high refusal rates. So I just, I thought yeah. that. that would be- I, I, and, and I think that's really, really interesting because for example, this module two that they have is a pre-assessment. So what they described is that the local staff will do a run through of each application. They're not the decision maker. They will do some sort of summary of the file or some summary notes and put it in. And so that really raised questions for me in terms of accountability and you know how does that get checked what if what mm. if that person who is pre-assessing made mistakes and the decision maker only relies on those notes like mm. we we have no way of checking that to verify that and and, and, and it's not used across the board so again uneven decisions for sure are definitely going to be resulting from that yeah and if i can jump in again i've seen refusals where 
essentially the pre-assessment is done out of Hanoi and then the final decision is actually done out of Singapore or Manila. So it's interesting because like these pre-assessment, these program assistants are essentially coming in from different contexts. Sure, you can reduce, you know, categorical issues such as age or gender or citizenship. But then when we're starting to talk about the uh, subjective, subjective elements of, let's say, the push and pull ties analysis, then it becomes a problem. And to Zainab's point earlier, actually, really interesting when you said to think something about copy paste. I'd like to show you something in today's episode. Uh, we've shown it to you before the show. I'd like to refer you to that excerpt of a GCMS refusal note. And we're showing it to our viewers on YouTube, uh, but basically for our listeners on the podcast, the audio version of this is that what these notes say at the top of it is select as applicable. And then there's a list of essentially grounds for refusal. And then there are ending notes, essentially that cap off on how this application is being decided on. What are your thoughts, Zainab? You know, I think that's fascinating. It's one of those slip ups where you get to see a little bit of what potentially that note generated looks like. But again, I'm not surprised because this is literally what we're saying. And unfortunately, it used to be that when you only when you got your reasons on TRVs, visitor visas, work permits, and you had the very standard language, which was the refusal, you know, standard like two or three bullet points that they would select, that was template. But now the notes are becoming templates, right? Because they're selecting from here. Now, to be honest, in terms of expediency and those interests of efficiency, et cetera, I think that there could be a way in which this could be done potentially where the the even the template notes there there's more nuance to them and they could actually address the points that are relevant to the case the what, what we're seeing is they're completely irrelevant so for example there will be an applicant who's married fully established has children and they're applying for study permit by themselves and the decision notes come back and say you know you know it's refused for family ties and then says applicant is married or uh, has dependents, but I'm not convinced. And there's there's no context, there's no explanation. It just does not match up. Or you know, people who have valid visitor visas and they're refused on a study permit, and and the the it's purpose of trip because we don't think you're actually going to come study. And the notes don't address the visitor visa at all, for example. And you know, if the person really didn't want to come and study, why would they? St- apply for a study permit they already have a visitor visa so it's these kinds of situations where to be honest I even with this whole discussion that we're having around Chinook I think the reason our applications in federal court are either settling or they're actually usually quite successful when they do go to hearing is because there is such a disconnect between the officer's reasons and the evidence that's presented by the applicants so I guess my question though is would it make more sense for immigration to be pursuing the route that they're doing now by coming up with, let's say, an answer key? And I know in the cross-examination, they said they could have up to a hundred different reasons for refusal. Wouldn't it make more sense for them to create a very, very detailed answer key to refuse rather than allow officers who themselves may not have the training or experience to make findings then have to show all their notes and then have to produce. Because we've seen when that happens, then they start making the mistakes that are also easy to judicial review, right? You see the use of some things like, you know, modest finances, they meet it, but they're modest. Things that, you know, we go to court and you say, well, that's not the legal test. Or if they make commentary on someone's Mm -hmm. immigration status and you're like, well, that's not the legal test. Mm -hmm. If they create a good enough answer key, that could be the legal test, no? Well, here, I I think there's two parts to this well, in my opinion. One is, I think we owe even our, you know, the temporary applicants a real duty of fairness to assess their applications. And I think part of that is we have to train our visa officers, right? Like we're we're charging $150. We are being Canada, right? IRCC is charging $150 per application. That adds up over the volume of files they're doing. And alternatively, given how much money students have to spend in order to prepare their applications, submit them, you know, all of those things, if they increase the application fees, even doubled it, 
I don't think it would have a significant impact on the number of applications or access for people to try and apply, but that budget could be used to better train the visa officers, right? I think that that, that is, if I was going to suggest something, I would say, let's go down that route because that makes it a fairer system. But the other side, I think, you know, if they're actually coupled with the training, there was an opportunity for them to really go through and provide much more accurate reasons in, 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 in some kind of, you know, answer keys you mentioned that has a lot more options that could be fitted to that, you know, the, the particulars of that case. And I think that makes sense. One of my own concerns that I always have is I don't think officers have you know, time. They, they, they didn't answer this question on cross-examination. Um, they tried to get some information from the deponent on this, like how many, like how much time does an officer have or how many files are they expected to get through? And they kind of said, oh, we, we can't really answer that and we don't have information. But I'm always concerned. I don't think officers are really afforded any reasonable period of time to review a file. Like, honestly, I don't think they even have five minutes per file. And five minutes per file is nothing when you really think about like what, what I'm sure you guys do the same thing. When we put these applications together, it's, it's like potentially a hundred pages, right? For a study permit, there's detailed information, there's documents, we describe them, we have submission letters, we have study plans, there's all kinds of documentation in there. And, you know, there has to be, I think, a balance between efficiency and doing, uh, providing a fairer opportunity for people to really have their files assessed. And we know from reading Vic Sashowich that I think it's it's minutes that they have to, to review. So it's you know not uncommon that when you represent a client to find out that the information that immigration says they didn't provide or or a fact that you know they say yeah. is not there is actually in one of the letters. But that actually brings me to the last question I want to ask before we turn it over to the litigation and how as counsel we can participate moving forward on uh, Okrin and on Chinook. What do you think the applicants should do now, right? Because when it comes down to it, now you know that immigration is barely extracting information from an application. A lot of it looks like from the Excel tool they use auto-generated from the forms or auto-fed. Um, a lot of the nuanced details that are in our 100-page you know, materials are going to be missed. That is just the yeah. reality of the system. So yeah. what should applicants do to try and beat Chinook or catch the Chinook, so to speak? Okay. I think there's two, two different approaches that I take to this, right? So what we know is that data is being pulled from the main forms, like those forms that you have to validate before you submit. So they're probably the easiest ones that are getting pulled into the system. So answering those questions as accurately and as completely as possible. And I know it's challenging because there's only so much information that's asked in the main application form, but making sure that it's accurate, um, you know, provide in the, in the, the description of activities, providing a little bit more information, like not just employed, not just student, but providing some information in there. I think that's really the only thing people can do on their form side. But what I'm advising everyone that we, you know, asks about study permits that we represent ourselves, we're taking all of that experience that we have from, from the judicial review work to make the files as complete as possible, right? With a view that Hopefully an officer will review this, but if they don't, and this file is going before the federal court, what is it? What are the main factors, right? So we want very detailed explanations. We want very clear documents. If there are discrepancies, gaps in education, you know, financial situations that need explanation, those have to be provided, providing evidence. So, you know, if a study permit application 2014, 2016 took us a couple of hours, it's a completely different ballgame now. And, you know, it's, it, I don't want to say it's the same as a permanent residence application, but it really has similar significance. Because remember, this is really the, the gate. If you don't get in, for a lot of people from many countries, if you're not able to come to Canada as a student and, and sort of start down this path, you're probably never going to have an option for immigration to Canada, right? So there's a lot of significance in my approach for study permit applications is to to prepare for court. Hopefully you'll get accepted and you won't have to think about that. But if you are not accepted, you want to have the best chance to be able to go and say, this is what I presented and this is why the decision is unreasonable. 
LG, did you want to add something to that? A question? I have one more thing uh, to say. If I can say no, no, go for <laughs> it. And then we'll shift over to the... No yeah. worries. One just, of the, uh, Zainab, yeah, your ideas were pretty much all my ideas. The one thing that I'm doing now too, and this is just a new strategy and a tip for the listeners out there. I'm actually create, creating now two applications within one. The one is the judicial proof, judicial review proof application. The one with you said with all the details covering mm-hmm. the gaps and everything. And then I'm trying to cover everything in like a covering page or in the, in the first page with like pure summaries, right? Like yeah. straight bolded font, point form, tables with finances, just the most simple, if you had two minutes to tell me your case, what would you say? Because I think that is also becoming increasingly important, especially if there's pre-assessment officers who, you know, don't want to take the time to read everything. If it's a messy file, they're not going to spend time reading through your page 70 of your translated document. (laughs) To add to Will's point, actually, yeah, you're right. I'm actually my first page and just like a tip for those uh, who are doing this out there as well. My first page is also an executive summary. It's an abstract and it's got a lot of colors, but it's still very simple that in five seconds of looking at it, you'll get the gist, the theory of the case. It's very important now, especially as we are like facing the barrel of the gun of AI down the horizon, it's coming. We need to be smart with this system that is already in front of us. Yeah. And I want to reiterate Zainab's point that the forms are just so vastly underappreciated by the clients. Mm-hmm. And that's often where they're not reviewing what they're advisors or unfortunately it's agents often overseas that are doing if you put the wrong amount of finances in your form if you don't lay out the detailed work history those things are going to come back to you even if you have it somewhere in your in your letters of explanation in your statement of purpose you need to include that information in the forms to make sure the officers see it and that it's pushed over mm-hmm. to their system so that's a really good point technical question do you guys uh, ocr your documents before they're uploaded into the system mm-hmm. i do so that an officer could presumably do a control f that's a very very good idea very good idea yeah. We have to do that for the federal court now. Mm-hmm. But I guess one problem with OCRs, though, is it doesn't capture oftentimes foreign languages uh, very That's carefully. Right. So it can blur the heck out of those. So another discriminatory <laughs> aspect of it. It's Last true. question before we go to, to, to Okrin. I do want to talk about, again, focusing on the client. How do we break down the myth of judicial review? Because let's be honest here. Judicial review is vastly misunderstood. Yeah. I would also say it's vastly not done well in, by most practitioners. The ones that do it well do it very well. But I've seen a lot of bad judicial reviews as well. And then, you know, a combination of the, the court delays and things that are outside of applicants' control, especially when they have letter of acceptances that are expiring and terms that need to be deferred, it creates this culture of misunderstanding that are often exploited by agents and consultants and individuals who can't go to federal court saying, you know what, your only option is to reapply or apply for reconsideration. So what would you say to someone about the judicial review process if they have a refused study permit? Why should they do it? Absolutely. You know, well, I think, you know, as we've moved forward and there's been more judicial review cases for temporary resident applications, whether TRVs or study permits, et cetera, and that knowledge spreads within communities, that helps a lot. You know, it's always more difficult. And, and, and I was more hesitant myself. Like if, if we were talking in 2019 and somebody was asking me, I would have explained the judicial review process, but I would have probably advised them to try to reapply. But once now, I mean, the data is available. So we can rely on the data, providing them with information in terms of, uh, unfortunately, if you are refused, the chance of getting refused again is high. We have applications where we're doing judicial reviews where the person was refused for the third time or the fourth time, right? And and there's really nothing else that could be added to the application and it's complete. And so in those circumstances, it's extremely valuable to be able to do judicial review. As I said, thankfully, when when people have done this and they're able to go back and explain to their friends and other people that they may be applied with, that has a positive impact. I know that, for example, within the the community that I've been working at, that has actually sort of snowballed, right? So there's actually a lot of applicants from Iran who've been refused for study permits and done judicial review. So there might be lots of applicants from other countries that are also refused, but they haven't had this positive experience of, of trying to do the judicial review. And it is certainly challenging because it's never guaranteed. 
We don't know exactly how long it will take. Something might be settled in 20 days and something might take eight months, nine months, you know, and there is certainly that concern and there's the cost aspect of it. But I think because there have been results, there have been good results for a lot of students who've gone down this path. And the reason that there are good results because they were strong applicants who were unfairly refused and unreasonably refused, then I think there's still an opportunity, even with this whole system of Chinook that we're talking about for people whose strong applications are refused to be able to, to use judicial review as an opportunity to have their files actually read by someone. I was actually gonna circle back to that point that you made earlier that it's actually potentially the first time that an officer would seriously consider an application once you JR a refused application. But allow me to shift the conversation a little bit here. Um, turning now to Okrin, actually, the pending litigation before the federal court. I'm just wondering, Zainab, what do you hope the federal court will do when they hear the department IRCC's argument for Chinook? Basically, the dichotomy between expediency and uh, how do you balance that with privacy, for example? You know what? I have spent a lot of time over the last several weeks thinking about this. Will and I have talked about this. I've spoken to other lawyers. I've talked to consultants about this. And all the things that are, you know were are my concerns have actually sort of I put them aside because today, and, and this is the information that I just got um, a couple of hours ago, I got the respondent's memorandum of argument, further memorandum of argument that was just filed in Oakland. I think it was filed yesterday. And I was just dying to read what their argument is. Like, how are they going to try and use, you know, the Chinook system and in, in justify, you know, reasons of using a note generator, et cetera. And to my complete surprise, there's no real reference to this. There's no argument about this in the notes. It's all with respect to a very fine point, which is the production of the CTR, the a certified tribunal record, because the CTR has to be a copy of the, you know, the full application, including notes, et cetera. And what it appears the Department of Justice and IRCC are arguing is that you know, I mentioned really early on that some of that, those notes, et cetera, are not copied over into GCMS. And also the fact that there's two systems. So there's these notes in the Excel and they get copied over. So it appears that Department of Justice is making an argument that we're just disclosing this and letting everyone know that the CTR is, 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 is being presented in this way, but there's no problem with it. And the really interesting thing is nobody in any of these matters has ever come forward and said, we believe there's a problem with the CTR. So I, 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 I'm not sure exactly where Department of Justice is going to go with this and what they're going to argue because, you know, all of the concerns that we've just talked about, but it appeared, this is, this is the way that they presented it. Now, my concern, I guess, if, if we're talking about potential ways in which this could be interpreted is, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned that it could come to the point where the federal court could say, it doesn't matter really what the notes are. You know, if the officer decided this, this, this is gonna be acceptable. And I don't think we're there yet. Thankfully, I, that's certainly not the argument that's been presented. They've not even gone close to that in their memorandum. And, you know, relying on all the other cases that we've seen, I think from 2020, 2021 in study permit applications, I think that, that that duty to actually provide reasons that are justifiable and that 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 flow is still going to be strong. And I, I, I'm just curious why the Department of Justice has done this. One of the only things that I thought might make sense is that they're maybe trying to, you know, set the scene for those questions of AI, et cetera, coming in the future, right? So this is one step closer to we use extra tools, technological tools to process things and we might not keep part of the notes. Now it's officers and later it might be computers, right? So that's that's possibly mm -hmm. where it might be going. But other than that, I'm just like on the edge of my seat waiting to see how, what they're going to do. I said for those interested, uh, Okrin's coming up in, in two weeks and, and hearings are, are publicly viewable. So if you want in more in more on this drama, I think we should all go watch Okran and uh, see what they do and, and uh, take notes. And Netflix watch party, right? Federal court watch party. I'll bring the popcorn. But 
actually, while you were talking about uh, what the strategy, overall strategy is, uh, a lot of alarm bells like ringing in my background. Uh, I'm thinking when you were talking about logical flow, I mean, that really goes back to what was handed down in Vavilov, where logical coherence and reasons have to be logically explained. And to me, this really comes into question when I think about how officers are essentially trying to lay down their reasons. They may not have laid out the argument in this responding memorandum, but then it begs the question, because I understand that they, the DOJ may be trying to introduce the same affidavit across different litigators. From my, what I heard from the intro, this is the second time that you may have encountered this, and I heard that others have encountered the appearance of Chinook in TR applications. I'm wondering if this argument has been, their actual argument has been mounted somewhere to sort of like create that baseline case to sort of divert from current, you know, underpinnings of essentially having reasons that are logical and coherent. It, it might be working towards that. And, and Lou, I honestly would have thought that this might be presented in a different way. I'm quite surprised. As I said, I, I just finished reading this before we got on this session. Mm. So I haven't really had a chance to process it and, and think it through that much. And there, there's a very clear focus on the argument they presented that it's all about the CTR and we want to make sure that the CTR and it's a courtesy to the court that we're providing this information when like literally no one has asked and they have filed this affidavit across the board. Like the, in, I don't want to say in every file that we have, but in so many of the files that we have, Will's files, they're, so they're putting a lot of effort into this. If, is it just the CTR issue? Well, I, I have some thoughts on this. And again, I think we're all speculating, but speculating is fun. First of all, you know, why shift from one case to another if it's just uh, you know, an issue there? You deal with it at the, at the initial outset with the memo you had. The other one is they're filing this pre-leave in early stages. They're saying they're going to file this. This is before the CTR even becomes relevant. If leave is not yeah. granted, there's no CTR even produced. So that's another flag for me. <laughs> so I, I agree with you, Zainab. Here's my thought, and here's my theory. I think it, I agree with you, Zainab. I think this is on the pathway of normalization. They're trying to normalize and introduce this language and introduce this process. And they found a case maybe where they thought they could pound this affidavit through without many questions. Maybe they too were taken aback by the fact that it was actually cross-examined. And the cross-examination did reveal things that if you actually wanted to make a deal of it, there are deals to be made, right? There, that this is not applied consistently, that they don't have a lot of these stats that, you know, why are you even filing this affidavit in a case like this? Yeah. So when you don't want to make it, you know, part of the argument, but you are trying to say it's part of the argument for all your other case, you know, there are a lot of questions out there, but I think I agree with you that they're trying to get this language in into the judge's purview to prepare for the idea that we're going to have systems decide cases, not necessarily the human use, you know, the the person behind the scenes right. gathering all the pros and cons and deciding a final decision. It's not going to work that way. Does it bother the both of you, any of you, really, that the uh, officer's working notes are erased? It bothers me oh. tremendously, right? And I, I actually have a concern. I'm like, we we didn't hear any information in terms of how that, inf like, how the decision for each person is copied over. Right. So imagine, like, if, I, if I'm working in a spreadsheet of 100 files, right? I could easily make a mistake and copy file 45 into, into file 46, right? And there's no information that would, there, there's no way to flag that that was an incorrect thing, mm -hmm. right? Like an incorrect copy and paste. There's just no accountability. And I, I find that hugely problematic. And I'm, I'm just curious why they did this, because it, there, there, it opens up so many more questions for us than it answers for sure. And I think, you know, you guys mentioned that right at the beginning, but it, it creates more of, you know, something along the lines of questions. Yeah. Puts more questions rather than answers. What it, what are they trying to do? I think that was yeah. the theory behind this. I think, I think we can, I mean, I mean, another question that, that arises that's really important too is the question of procedural fairness, right? So, mm. you know, you are seeing more misrepresentation findings and I'm not getting from the affidavit what happens when, what if it's the working notes before a final decision, if it's an interim 
you know, procedural fairness, what gets pushed over to GCMS, what gets maintained, what gets deleted and re removed afterwards, right? There's, there's no, no trace, Will. There's no there's trace. No trace. Right? That's the thing. And Vavilov demands that the logical coherence need to be established. And if you don't have those notes, you can't. And to me, what really is alarming in this whole package of information is that I agree with you, Will. It's sort of like, you know, nothing to see here, very blasé, even in the cross-examination document. They're trying to normalize it. The, 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 yeah. These notes are being erased and that it's okay to pick a reason from this drop-down menu on their Excel sheet and it should be fine and the court should pay no heed. Mm -hmm. and, and remember this, I, I didn't get a chance to touch upon this, but this tool was developed by a series of, I guess, more technical people in their team um, without really input from a legal side, right? I mean, they said maybe they ran some things by the legal, but they did not go back and think about procedural fairness, right? And, well, you know, it, I, I think that's, that comes through very clearly in, in the kind of conversation we're having today because they could have developed a tool that considered procedural fairness, right? Like you could, you could create a tool in Excel that generates individual files. Like I'm not a very techie person, but I can imagine that it would take maybe a little bit more work, but there could be an opportunity to do that, right? So you could have efficiency, but still pres you know, preserve the idea of having oversight and having that logic that we're talking about. Okay, so maybe we'll transition to, we're, we're heading close to the final question, but the, the second last question I wanted to ask you was, what do you think about the Department Just of Justice's approach generally on these judicial reviews? Because we are seeing in, in many of these cases clearly, you know, unreasonable decisions uh, created by Chinook, not created by Chinook, just in terms of just the wording. Department of Justice is trying to fight back, reverse engineer, right? Saying that, you know, the, there was insufficient evidence, there could have been all these explanations that weren't provided, nothing that's actually in the actual officer's reasoning. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, it's causing our clients to have to go through, a, 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 like, like you said earlier, an expensive, drawn out, spend months and months fighting, fighting, fighting until a leave decision is granted. And then suddenly the, the tent is being folded, consents are occurring. Mm -hmm. these, these cases never make it to, a lot of them never make it to court, probably because our positions are so strong as applicants. What do you think about this strategy, though, of, of, of bringing students in? And, and what is the fear then if, if, you know, if decisions do get sent back to these offices? And let's say they, re they, they refuse them again and they find something else in their list of 100 refusal reasons and, 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 and pick on those clients who, who chose judicial review as a process. Yeah. Is that something that concerns you? I think that there's a recognition within the IRCC system that there are a, a large number of errors. Right. I think that they recognize this at the visa office level. They just don't have the resources to be able to deal with it. I think they recognize it for the most part at the judicial review level, too, like when we're, we're dealing with DOJ. Um, we actually have had a lot of files um, that have been consented to and settled prior to hearing decisions. I know that you've had a lot of files where after you get to the, you know, leave decision, then then you, they've, you've received um, settlement. I think that's a little bit more difficult for for applicants you know it's, it's a delay right and their per their whole goal is to come steady but i think that recognition of the errors makes it much more likely that when somebody goes through this process and their application is reopened for the most part i've seen that they've been accepted and i think the reason for that is that you know, I, I don't know what they do, but it's not going back into the Chinook system. It's not going back into this, like, got to be processed really quickly. I think somebody sits down in the local visa office or the automobile visa office, wherever it is, and will review the update documents. I have seen a couple of files that were refused after resubmission. And in those files, it's interesting because you don't get Chinook style generic reasons. You get somebody who sat down reviewed the documents in full, provided complete sentences with a logical flow. So you can't JR it for sure, but it makes sense, right? So they've actually sat down, they reviewed it. They said, you know, there's an error, there's a problem, there's a real concern with respect to certain aspect of the application, which is what we would expect should happen in every single application, right? Um, so at least in my experience over the past year, year and a half, there's that recognition. Unfortunately, I think there's 
not a completely unified approach across the DOJ in terms of how councils should react to these files. I think they're probably overwhelmed too, just with the sheer volume of these applications coming in compared to previous years, and they're overworked too. Some of the DOJ lawyers are much um, receptive to those conversations about settlement earlier on the process, and some of them will, in fact, try to justify those Chinook reasons and, 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 and notes, and, you know, those files may go to hearing or a leave decision, yeah. Unfortunately, in Vancouver, we don't even have the the early settlement pilots that you that you have. So, in our cases, oftentimes, unless you are able to connect with counsel in advance, that's usually not assigned until after you file your materials. It's difficult to start that conversation. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I agree with you. I think it's if the ball is always in Department of Justice courts to determine what gets filtered up, what gets to go to court, what and, and oftentimes it is unfortunately bad fact cases that go to court. Yeah. Bad facts make bad law. There should be a little bit more, I would say, on the front end to allow us to resolve our clients' cases without having to drag them through the, the laundry cleaners all the way to the end. And then, mm-hmm. you know, their their lives in five, six, seven months can right. be disrupted through this process. I'd like to circle back to Zainab's point about expediency and balancing the cost of the whole system as well. I mean, to her point, is it actually even more efficient for the taxpayer to keep on litigating files that involve study permits? When I first explained the study permit, judicial review process to some of my clients, they were shocked. Their jaws, their jaws literally dropped. Because in other countries, for example, in the US or in the UK, they would just get an interview. And all of these doubts that, you know, visa officers would basically have issues with, let's say at local visa offices or in Ottawa, would be dispelled. They would be able to address and make follow-up questions right there and then. They can easily like, you know, make those decisions just by looking at the person, because if their application isn't consistent, then it's easy to establish that. Whereas we're now dealing with a system that prioritizes expediency and low costs. And as Zainab said, there are clients who are willing to actually shell out more than the 150 for those uh, study permit applications in view of the fact that they will be spending thousands, tens of thousands of dollars when they get to Canada anyway. Lou, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm I'm actually quite in favor of an interview process being added or having a more transparent system where we, you know, again, the study permit um, stream is a way in which applicants um, can create much more long-term plans. And if we are allowing people to come as students, we could be more transparent in terms of, you know, um, opportunities that people are going to have later to apply for permanent residency. So if you really, like, I think sometimes an officer will look at an application, they will not say it, but they will probably decide this person has no chance to really apply for CEC or federal skilled worker later. So they would, after their studies, they might stay illegally, right? Or they might overstay, et cetera. And so they're doing this calculation. Why don't we make something like that a lot more clear? Like, the government of Canada could come out and make IRCC could make um, the requirements much more clear. And, you know, all of those implied biases that the officers have when they're assessing these applications, if applicants know that up front, then we won't have, you know, someone who has a diploma at 35 applying for a bachelor degree in Canada, right? Like, if you don't know that this is, a, this is a calculation that's going on in the officer's mind. You think, okay, if I have the resources, I have this, I have that, I can apply. And, and for Canada, it's just $150 processing fee. But that person, it's potentially hundreds of hundreds of dollars of other fees in terms of getting admission, et cetera. And I think that might cut, might make better pool of applicants in terms of, you know, ultimately, what we what Canada does when it goes around the world and it markets itself as a study destination is, you know, we have postgraduate work permits and you can apply for permanent residency in the future, right? So if we're being very honest and transparent about it, there are ways in which the government can actually create much more clear guidelines and can have slightly higher fees, can have interviews so that we have this whole system in place that creates a more fair opportunity for people to have their applications assessed. I know, I know we don't have time for this on this episode, but we probably want Zina back for another one on this, but the, the whole education industry, uh, I know there's the recent walrus piece, but the billions of dollars that are being funneled now, the new things with students who are 
overseas studying online. I know that I've seen had so many consultations on that where they've been online, they've paid their Canadian tuition or they've got their first stage approval and then they get refused later. They just can't get study permits and yet they've paid all this international tuition money to Canadian institutions, paid their agents a lot of money to get them into the schools. So there, there's there's definitely something that's more systemic here that we need to focus on. And I think Zainab's comments uh, are definitely one part of that to, to, to improving the system. Zainab, please come back. Yes. <laughs> I would love awesome. to, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so on, on that note, I think our, our final commentary that we just want Zainab to, to discuss, and I think that's actually a perfect segue, is, is, is the power of collaboration. And I know we wanted to end it on a more positive note, given we, we, we kind of went through a bit of a critique system session over here. But, you know, for me, Zainab, this has been a, a power of, of collaboration, you collaborating with me on this, and then us trying to collaborate with Okrin's council, who I think have been pretty receptive to us as well. And then LJ with all the, the evidence and data that he provides us and that and I think that has been circulating through different institutions and different clients and has really made things more transparent. How do you think we can collaborate better as immigration representatives, as lawyers, as consultants, as those who are holding our students' interests at the foremost uh, moving forward? What can we do? It, it has been such an interesting and inspiring experience for me as well, being involved in this whole process. And it's funny because, you know, it's the pandemic and we're, we're literally in different cities and, but we're able to collaborate. And I think at the seed of this is some of the, the work that I've seen at least will do in terms of raising awareness, right? And that kind of selfless, information sharing like when you learned about Ukraine it was you know let's let's get articles out there let's get awareness out there let's let's allow other practitioners lawyers etc to learn about this. it was fascinating I was actually talking to uh, an immigration consultant today and then he started asking me about Ukraine and he's like I saw that you were involved in this and I was like this is great you know this means that through all of these channels that well Lou etc are are on this information is getting pushed out there. And I think that overall collaborative approach, I think all of us within this industry want to have a, a system that works efficiently, that works more fairly. And we're, we're literally like all on the same team, right? We don't want fraud. Like we're, we, we are all fighting for the same main principles here. And I think part of the, the first part of that is, is the information. So I think, you know, because of that information, I was actually able to connect with Will on this. And then I think it's an amazing community that we can rely on each other, right? So I think um, we've done this on a pro bono basis, working on, you know, assisting on the Auckland case. And, and, and I'm happy to put in more time as necessary as, as issues like this come up. And I think a lot of our colleagues are too, and that's what makes it, um, uh, and a great community to be able to, to continue to work in. Wonderful. Well, on that note, Zainab, thank you. And please, please, please come back. Yes. <laughs> he would love to have another discussion with you on a bunch of other topics concerning study permits. Absolutely. It has been a pleasure talking with you guys today. This has been something that I've spent a lot of time on. You know, we're working in the trenches every day, getting these applications out, but, you know, you know, Having an opportunity to discuss it has been great, and I hope that it will be helpful for our colleagues and, and to your listeners as well. Okay, well, that was very, very much enlightening. I learned a lot. Uh, you know, final thoughts. Yeah, well, Zainab has been spending a lot of time thinking about Chinook, thinking about Okrin. And my final thoughts are for all of us as counsel and, and for applicants themselves to do a lot of deep thinking on these systems, on the way we want our immigration system to go, because we know artificial intelligence, we know machine-based learning. These are things that are going to become common. These are things that society is working towards, not only just immigration. But as we dehumanize these processes what happens to the applicants at the heart of this? What are their expectations? What are their procedural fairness rights? If we create a more transparent system and if we let more individuals know about how these systems work, at least people can make an informed decision about whether or not to spend or invest in Canada. And that way we also tackle fraud and tackle uh, all those things, these outside considerations that often sway students the wrong way and can have a huge financial and mental health uh, impact on them. So you know what, 
it's just the start of the conversation. We're just starting to learn more, but I think this is, uh, again, for me, it's the most important development of immigration probably this year. I agree. And I really don't have a, you know, final thoughts on this. I think I'll just echo what you said, but I do have a few things to say on uh, closing. First of all is I want to circle back to our point about collaboration and the power of uh, working together across the bar, even in the midst of a pandemic. Physically, yes, we are disconnected, but I, I, just like Zainab, I feel more connected to the immigration bar, getting lots of colleagues cross-generational in the immigration refugee bar. This is all fascinating and I'm learning a lot. And I'd like to also highlight a point. It's essentially a call to action. Will has started this thing called Operation Catch the Chinook. Please contact Will. He has uh, prepared a cloud-based Excel sheet, in fact, uh, <laughs> to catch Chinook. the Chinook. Yeah, exactly. Module 4.5. So 4.5, exactly. And we're, we're just trying to figure out if we can find some similarities with respect to the refusal notes. So please, please, please get in touch. Yeah. And finally, I'd also like to do a little plug for Will. He has a talk coming up, I believe, in October. Is that it's in October? October. It's, right. it's virtually, but through Ottawa, correct. Fantastic. And I myself also am doing a little bit of a plug in November. If things hold up, I think hopefully it, it'll be in person in Montreal for the annual Yay. conference for Ad Acadie. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, it could revert to online. It really depends yeah. on the uh, epidemiology in the coming months. Great. Well, as the summer rolls by and you know we went from spring to summer the season changed <laughs> now to fall we want to thank all our listeners for being a part of this journey we would love to hear from you so please add us contact our socials email us subscribe. let us know what you want to see subscribe <laughs> hit the <laughs> like button let us yes. know what you'd like to you'd like to see you know we're, we're a relatively homegrown process we bring on guests that usually wouldn't be on other shows we find mm. individuals one of our guests has recently gotten you know, a huge job with a, a national media company. We, we find people mm. before they go big. <laughs> that's, yeah. our, that's our thing. Bellwether. Um, but yeah. So you know, whether you're a sponsor looking to support a, a grassroots project or if you're a listener or an immigrant who's experienced something and, and, and want a voice and, uh, on our show, please reach out. We're always looking mm -hmm. for new content. We look forward to building an amazing fall for all of you. On that note, thank you very much uh, for joining us in today's episodes, and uh, we will catch you in the next. Take care. Bye.